1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. I just talked with Matt Crawford about his new book that came out with the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2016, The Andean Wonder Drug, Cinchona Bark and Imperial Science in the Spanish Atlantic, 1630 to 1800. So this is a book about a really fascinating case study um, in the context of early modern and 18th century science in the Spanish Atlantic world that opens up from a particular example, right? This is the example of kina or cascaria. You may be more familiar with the term quinine, right? Or cinchona, um, cinchona bark. And it opens out from that very particular case study into much broader questions about the relationship between science and empire, um, the place of and the significance of indigenous healing and practices and knowledge to how we understand the production of science in the early modern worlds um, and all kinds of related issues. Um, the the uh, nature of the epistemic um, culture of Spanish colonial science. Um, all kinds of really interesting things are going on in this book. So Throughout the book and throughout the conversation, um, implicitly or explicitly, Matt invokes the significance of particular archives and collections of documents in shaping the story. So you'll hear him talk early on um, about the significance of discovering, um, and this was in 2004, bundles of manuscripts labeled documents related to the discovery and development of quinine when he was in Spain. Um, He also talks frequently in the book about the, the significance of particular kinds of historical, archival, and documentary records um, for understanding aspects of this story. And one of the really um, interesting things about the book, and you'll hear us talking about this in a few moments, is the way that Matt brings together different kinds of evidence, different kinds of documents, including ethnobotanical work, um, including kind of contemporary or modern scientific and biomedical work on the nature of particular diseases, in order to tell this very multi faceted story. So the book is... Um uh, separated into two parts. Part one looks at what it meant to know nature, um, right, in quotes, in the early modern Atlantic world. And it traces the transformation of kina from a local Andean remedy into a botanical commodity and um, then an imperial natural resource in the Spanish Atlantic world from the mid-17th to the mid-18th centuries. Um, now, this shows uh, here in this part of the book that the transformations were the results of the Barks integration into a whole bunch of networks of circulation, circulation of people, of texts, of objects, uh, and of images. And these networks were Andean networks, Atlantic networks, and imperial networks. Part two of the book turns us from that to um, the context of conflicts in the late 18th century, as the Spanish crown tried to assert greater control over the tree and its bark. Um, and you'll hear about how that worked out for them over the course of the conversation. So, with that, I will let you get to it um, and just say this is a really fascinating study for anyone interested in the history of the early modern world, um, the history of materia medica, the history of drugs, history of natural history. So, there's a lot going on that's of interest to, I think, a broad um, number of kinds of communities of readers here. Thank you so much for listening and for your support of the channel, um, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Matthew James Crawford about his new book, The Andean Wonder Drug. Welcome to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, Matt. Thanks so much for writing a fascinating book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having me.
1: Of course. So let's start at the beginning. Um, How did you come to work in the field of history of science? Why early modern science, or 18th century, right, in particular? And why science in the Spanish Atlantic world?
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit of a complicated story, as I imagine is for most people. Um, I I didn't know about the history of science until late in my undergraduate career. Um, I was actually a biology major for a long time and then uh, just got interested in history and started taking history courses. And um, I met a faculty member that I wanted to do a a senior thesis project with and sat down with him and and had some ideas. And he said to me, well, how is your interest in science going to work into this? And I said, Well, it isn't because this is a history project, you know, (laughs) and and uh, that was then when he informed me about uh, this field, history of science. And um, I I didn't actually get a chance to take any courses in history of science as an undergraduate, but um, wrote a senior thesis on um, monsters in the early modern world Um, and I guess that's part of how I got into the early modern. Was the uh, faculty member I was working with, uh, Howard Solomon, who's now retired from Tufts University. He was an early modernist, and I had taken courses with him and just discovered the strange and interesting world of the early modern. And um, you know, just uh, really enjoyed uh, him as a teacher, but also the the material. Uh, And the readings in the early modern and so that's kind of how I ended up in early modern and then through working on this uh, Senior thesis got interested in the idea of you know, sort of how does modern science come about? You know, how do we go from a world, you know kind of the classic question of how do we go from a world of? Magic and you know seemingly strange beliefs from our perspective to the kind of science that we have today Um, so yeah it was it was um you know not you know sort of by accident i guess in a way um, mm-hmm. and then uh yeah so that that's that's and then i decided to that that's what i wanted to follow up with in graduate school and doing graduate degrees in um because i enjoyed doing that that senior thesis so
1: and you know the early modern uh, or the world of early modern science is really, objectively speaking, the best part of the thing. So <laughs> yes, just I would, so, you I know, would just agree so with that. Just so that listeners know, if anyone's like, you know, I think <laughs> I want to study the history of science. What period <laughs> right. should I focus on? Right. Just so that they know, objectively, the early modern period. Yeah, yeah yes <laughs> so what I'll do is um, I'll say a little bit about the book um, to kind of situate listeners who may not have had a chance um, to see it or to read it yet um, and then I'll ask you kind of what brought you to this particular topic and if any of what I'm about to say sounds articulate it is not my fault it is the fu- it is the or it's not uh, my doing it's the doing of the book because some of this is um, relating the words of the book and so if any of this sounds good it's um, due to listeners and not due do to me. So the book focuses on a medicinal tree bark that I'm going to mispronounce. Um, this is, so Matt, tell me if I'm getting this right. Kina. That
0: uh, yeah, right? that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, Kina <laughs> or cascarilla. Is that right? That, that is correct. Also. Yay. Yes. Okay. So the book focuses on this medicinal tree bark. It looks very closely at the struggles of the Spanish empire in the second half of the 18th century to control, um, this tree and its bark. Right. And th- this, uh, cinchona is that right um kin- yes kin- yep. okay cinchona yep. you know i i um incidentally i write about cinchona and because i never talk oh. about it i actually yeah. didn't know how to pronounce it i was yeah like, i mean cinchona
0: <laughs> some people say chinchona, chinchona. um mm-hmm. because I was wondering yeah because in but in spanish i've always heard it cinchona so we're
1: you gonna know, call it cinchona then Yeah. We are gonna call it Cinchona. Okay, so it looks at the struggles of this empire in the second half of the eighteenth century to control the cinchona Sinson- tree and its bark, and it also traces the history of Kina as a product of local, imperial, and commercial networks in the eighteenth century Atlantic world. Now, the book shows, among other things, that science proved to be a relatively ineffective um, kind of thing in Spanish imperial enterprise when compared, at least, to other European empires in the contemporary 18th century world. Um, now, the case study for understanding this, and we'll talk about this in the context of the chapters specifically, is the royal reserve of Quina's attempts um, to produce a kind of synergy of science and empire, as you describe it here, to try to improve royal reserves of the substance and also to strengthen imperial control over the trees and their bark. And as we get into the conversation, we'll hear about um, sort of why the um, empire uh, would have been interested in this, right? Why the crown would have been interested in this substance in particular, um, and then uh, how they managed these efforts to control the tree and the bark. Now, the book argues that this relative inefficacy um, of science here was for two main reasons, and I'll just name these and then we'll kind of open out. Um, the first reason is that the context mattered. The Andean and Atlantic contexts mattered. This was a very particular kind of geography of knowledge, um, as the book shows. Um, and in the words of the book, in this particular context, in Andean forests and Atlantic ports were as much centers of knowledge production as European pharmacies and botanical gardens. Now, this was due in part, um, as you show here in the words of the book, to the tenacity of bark collectors, of merchants, and of local officials in asserting the authority of their own knowledge and expertise. And we'll talk about that. This was also due to the structure and style of Spanish colonial governance, which, um, as you show here in the words of the book, undermined the authority and efficacy of European science, especially since science and empire were so profoundly intertwined in the Spanish Atlantic world. Whew, okay, so there's a lot of really fascinating things going on there, and there are so many um, wonderful stories and details um, that we'll talk about that um, flesh out all of that. But before we get there, Matt, how did you come to Kina? Like, why Kina as your case study, and why this particular way of understanding Kina in the book?
0: Right, okay, so. Um... You know, it was a bit by design and it was a bit by serendipity. Um, So when I was in graduate school and thinking about projects that I was interested in, uh, I was thinking about the relationship between science and the state, that sort of general theme, and particularly interested in the ways that sort of states make knowledge about the natural world. Um, At some point, I had read James Scott's Seeing Like a State, and that was sort of uh, uh, one of many influential books that I read, but just got me thinking about the way that states produce knowledge. And, um, And at that point, I was already thinking about a kind of Spanish colonial topic, Atlantic World topic, and so got interested in the Spanish Empire as a site of knowledge production and, you know, at the point I was in graduate school, Jorge Canizares Guerra's book had come out and uh, Antonio Barrera's work was sort of making its way through the t- pipeline as well as Daniela Bleichmar and so forth. So there was this real um, wave of, of work in English uh, on the Spanish Atlantic world and thinking precisely about these themes of science and empire. Now, the specific story of Kina, that's the sort of accidental side of the story, um, I had gone to the Archivo General de Indias, the main colonial archive in Seville, on a pre-dissertation research trip with a completely different project in mind, a 16th century project, um, which then sort of blew up in my face a little bit when I actually got to the archive um, uh, not not because it was uh, non-existent, but just from talking to local scholars that knew the archive, they told me that uh, the project that I had in mind was a very, very long-term project. You know, it would take a long time to kind of pull all the documents out of the archive. And so on my last, literally my last day of that trip, um, I decided to call out some documents that were called something like, documents relating to the discovery and development of quinine. I mean, before that I had really not even thought that much about uh quinine uh you know, and, and didn't even realize that it existed as a live topic. Um but I called these documents out and I like I said, I literally had one day, but um the because quinine is of great interest in the history of medicine, in the nineteen thirties on the three hundredth anniversary of uh, you know, the European, let's say, encounter with uh, Sanchona Bark, they had taken all the documents and kind of pulled them together into these nice um, bundles. And so I was looking through this bundle of, you know, the one I was looking at probably had about 1500 documents in it. And just quickly looking through it, I could, t- I, I don't know, intuition or something told me that there was a good, uh, there was a good project here about, um, you know, science in the state. And clearly, there was all this knowledge that the Spanish state was collecting and circulating and even producing about this, um, about this tree bark. And, you know, I went to some internet cafe and tried to look up as best as I could, you know, what had been written about it and found that there hadn't been, uh, that much written about the Spanish side of the story. And so, um, You know, I I, I took a bit of a gamble because I only had one day to look at these documents. But, um, you know, it it turned out to be a very uh, fruitful project. Um, And then, you know, I went back to Spain the following year and 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 then, you know, did various research trips and so forth. Um, But it but, you know, again, looking at these documents, I could really see that this theme that I was thinking about, the kind of interface between science and empire or science and the state was really present um, in these documents. Um, and, you know, it, yeah, it just, it just felt like it would be a good story to tell and a good case study to, uh, explore.
1: Excellent. And in the transition from the dissertation instantiation of the project and the book we mm. are talking about, were there any major transformations in how you were either kind of thinking about or structuring the project or really just any major changes?
0: Yeah. So, <clears throat> I would say structurally if you look at the book itself, the first half of the book, um, that is the first three chapters, are are really uh, substantial new material and sort of a rethinking of the project to situate it more fully in the different contexts uh, that you mentioned in your little uh, intro of sort of the local Andean world, the Atlantic world, um, and then the larger sort of imperial context. Um, I would say by and large, the dissertation was focused more narrowly on just the story of the Royal Reserve. And I think the dissertation was just my attempt to kind of, you know, because I had something like 15,000 pages oh <laughs> related related to the Royal Reserve, you know, so I think the dissertation was just my attempt to kind of put that information into some kind of order, right. And so, so that was sort of the first step. And then, uh, turning it into a book, in addition to thinking about, uh, you know, the audience beyond my dissertation committee, <laughs> um, you know, I, I really started to uh, think more seriously about the context, the different contexts in which the story was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the stuff about the Andean world and the Atlantic world, I mean, those were things that I were aware, was aware of when I wrote the dissertation, but, um, when I was thinking about transforming into a book, I really, um, you know, I, re- I, 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 ha- I had the realization that I hadn't taken them seriously enough and I needed to really, I re- I needed to really do more work, uh, to get that material in there. Um, and part of that was having a fellowship at the John Carter Brown library, which is, um, you know, this great library for early America, uh, the early history of the Americas. And just being in that environment that encouraged me to think about my project in a different way. Um, That was really helpful. And then I would say the other major thing was just getting clearer on what was the main overarching argument that I wanted to make about science and empire and the contribution of the Spanish Atlantic world to hopefully the (laughs) larger historiography of science and so forth. Um, That was a real challenge rewriting the introduction to make that clear because there are so many different ways so many different um, themes that I could reach out to with this project and I was worried about it getting too diffuse and trying to do too much and so I tried to really sit down and think like what's the biggest question uh, that I want to engage that will hopefully engage the broadest Possible number of readers. Um, I don't know if I did that, but that was a major concern as well in um, revising from dissertation to book.
1: Well, let's actually get into it and let's start with one of the chapters um, that you were just talking about. This is chapter one, which looks at Kina as a medicament. Um, Now, this is, you show us here um, the local context of Kina in the Andean world. The Bark was first associated with uh, an Andean province of Loja, right? Mm -hmm. And this was a region, and you talk about this here, with a very long history as a center of medical knowledge and practice. And we learn a lot about this region um, for the purposes of the book here in this chapter. I think it's a really um, kind of wonderful contextualization. Now, one of the really interesting things happening in this chapter is you talk about the significance of indigenous healers and the sophistication of their practices to the story. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, for you, um, what's important for us to understand? here in this part of the book about the significance of these healers. Right. I mean, what was, yeah. um, uh, and, and also what kind of documents, what kind of materials as a historian gave you access to understanding <laughs> their practices and the significance, right? I mean, that's another really, yeah. really important part of yeah. of this story.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, if, it, you know, the question of what's important, uh, I'll, I'll start with that first. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know anybody who works on a project like this, um, and and you're trying to, uh, you know, write for a broader audience. I mean, certainly a lot of work has been done to kind of uh, diffuse or undermine or show how wrong the stereotypes about indigenous people are and or indigenous groups are and and their history and so forth. And um, what I really felt was important in this chapter was making sure that the readers, uh, or, or, or that I try to help the readers, uh, take indigenous healer, healers seriously as, um, as, as, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, quote unquote experts, you know, uh, mm-hmm. people that, that have, that come from a tradition of knowledge, uh, that, that, uh, you know, engage in this knowledge that are, that are not, um, you know, their knowledge isn't static, it's dynamic. And, you know, that's, of course, one of the challenges, because it's changing in response and in contact with uh, European knowledge that's coming over. Um, So, yeah, you know, and and, I mean, the fact is, the sources don't really tell us, at least the sources that I know of, don't really tell us when indigenous healers started using the bark. Um, And there have been all kinds of arguments in the last Hundred, hundred and fifty years about whether they know or did didn't know and so forth and um, you know I mean obviously I I feel convinced that that they had this knowledge and so um, I wanted uh, again I wanted to make clear that that you know not just that they had this knowledge but it but it kind of made sense from what we think we know about um, their worldview and their healing practices and um, and uh, you know, sort of the medical cosmology of Vandean healers and so forth. Um, in terms of of documents, uh, yeah, obviously it's it's very difficult uh, to get at this material. And um, you know, I, I I have to say I relied very heavily on the work of uh, ethnobotanists, um, in particular um, an ethnobotanist at the Missouri Botanical Garden named Reiner Busman. Um, who's done a lot of great studies uh, actually in the Loja region of uh, contemporary uh, indigenous healers. And of course, you know, um, you know, you have to use that information with a certain amount of care and caution because you can't assume that what indigenous healers are doing today is, uh, (laughs) you know, analogous or indicative of what they were doing in the 17th century or even before that. But uh, you know, it's one of the sources of information that that we have you know so um i relied on his work and some other um anthropologists and also historians or historical anthropologists that have uh looked at different uh healing groups of healers um in the andean world um not all from Loja, but from some other uh, parts of the andean world and then there you know i mean there are some some places in the colonial archive where you can uh, see a little bit about uh, what indigenous healers are doing, so that chapter starts off um, you know with, uh, with the story of a guy who I think was likely an indigenous healer that that meets this you know, there seems evidence that that he's practicing a uh, medicine in addition to harvesting the bark for the purposes of you know selling it uh, in the local markets and so forth. Um,
1: so great. Thank you so much. Um, and so some of what you were just talking about really nicely leads us into the second chapter. Um, but I just want to mark for listeners that one of the really important points, um, at least for me, as a reader that was made in this chapter before we move on, is that it's really important as historians. And you can hear the um, sirens maybe in the background emphasizing <laughs> the importance of this, right? Reminding me, talk about this in the context of what science is, Carla. Yes, yeah. thank you, sirens, I will. So it's important to think broadly, um, right, as a historian about what counts as part of the history of science to right. include the kinds of practices and phenomena that are happening here, right? I mean, did right. you want to speak to that a little bit?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I I, I can't – I, you know, I mean, in spite of the fact that I just published this book and, you know, I feel like the book represents my state of thinking at the time, it's a really diff- – I think, you know, for folks that work on uh, science and colonial context or maybe science in general, I mean, it's a difficult um, – you know, it's a difficult problem, especially when you get down to the brass tacks of actually trying to construct a narrative, right? Um, because you want to make a distinction, uh, or there may be some cases in which it's worth making a distinction between, um, science quote unquote, that's happening in early modern Europe that takes a particular form institutionally, socially, intellectually, and, uh, you know, and, and and then what is variously called indigenous knowledge or vernacular knowledge or ethnomedicine, right? I mean, we have all these terms that kind of replicate this divide between uh, European science, you know, with a capital S, and then non-European knowledges, right? And um, like I said, there's some cases where you want to make that distinction, but there are other instances where that's incredibly problematic because it's precisely that distinction that has meant that um, you know, certain knowledges about the natural world, let's say, were left out of the story of the history of science because they were deemed as non-scientific or non-science. And I, you know, like I said, I don't. <laughs> I think this is just a tension. I don't. I don't know that there's a really good answer to it. But um, in writing the book, I I found it hard to find a language that was would kind of allow me to talk about what say a European botanist and an indigenous healer and and maybe a merchant who's doing some empirical testing, you know, talk about those um, in the same kind of sentence, if you will, you know what I mean? In the same context. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh,
1: and this is this kind of thing I think is increasingly a concern of many historians right now, right? Not just historians of science, but as we kind of try to think expansively and practice expansively Um, Right. In terms of, you know, the relationship of knowledge and power and and who we're empowering. um, Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it's not our job or our place. Right. Or our ability to empower anyone. But sort of at least reconceiving um, our practice and and the boundaries of what constitute the field and the discipline to be more capacious. Right. um, And and open, I think, then. In some right. ways they have been i think this is um this is a contribution to that that i really appreciated thanks so part of what you uh, mentioned before i think really leads us nicely into the next chapter you were talking about the significance of kind of um if we can call it uh braiding together like ethnobotanical accounts mm-hmm. with other kinds of documentary evidence to try to tell this story um and i think that's a really great example of the way that the book um, not only in the content that it describes, right, but also in mm-hmm. its methodology brings together very different forms of knowledge in telling this story. So you just talked yeah. about ethnobotany. Um, we see this also in the next chapter um, <laughs> where right, uh, where you're looking yeah. at Kina as a commodity, and part of what's happening is um, here uh, weaving together or bringing together not just archival records of imports to understand Kina as a commodity, but also looking at um, – kind of uh, epidemiological and scientific um, knowledge of mm-hmm. malaria, right? Mm-hmm. As a way of understanding how the importance of malaria in the early modern world, especially in its connection with the expansion of plantation agriculture in the Caribbean and the intensification of the Atlantic slave trade, but also just sort of how we understand the disease um, helps us understand this part of the story. So, by th- yeah, yeah. Um so oh, sorry, did you wanna talk a little bit about no, that? No, no, no.
0: <laughs> I was just gonna I was just agreeing, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: and so so this is a really striking part of this part of the book. So by the mid-18th century, here's where we are for listeners, the Spanish crown formally declared its interest in the bark as an imperial natural resource. And this chapter shows, um, and this is in the words of the book, how epidemiological, environmental, and economic developments in the wider Atlantic world are catalyzing the transformation of the bark from a local remedy into a global botanical commodity. Um, Now, part of what's going on here is that to meet the demand, the scale of production of kina had to increase. Um, what were mm-hmm. some of the most, for you, um, significant consequences of that increase in scale and, and of this transformation um, into a commodity?
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think I think part of what this chapter is trying to do is, is um, you know, talk about how cinchona Bark became an object of interest, right? Because, you know, it, It didn't always work all the time. And, you know, I mean, there were certainly physicians and pharmacists in Europe that thought it was dangerous to use it because there were high-profile cases where people died and so forth. And so, um, you know, really thinking about the different factors that came together to make this, you know, Kina at this particular moment an object of interest uh, to the Spanish Empire. So that's – You know, that's that's part of what this chapter is doing and why it's looking at all these different uh, types of factors, as you mentioned, the epidemiological and environmental and so forth. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think the question of the sort of significance of it, uh, of the trade ramping up and so forth. I mean, there's many different ways that you could look at that. Right. Um, one that I'll just mention in particular is, again, if you look at the local Andean context, um, it's kind of one of these cases of, you know, uh, interesting sort of historical, uh, coincidence of a sort, because, you know, the, um, you know, the local economy starts to decline for various reasons, uh, you know there were some gold mines in the area and and the, their production starting to drop off but also the textile industry is sort of moving away and you know so in a way it was very fortuitous for the people in this region that you know this local uh medicament that they produced was was all of a sudden becoming a global commodity right so it was um incredibly important to them and it it's I, perhaps misspoke a little bit when I said it was a coincidence, because I do think that there are larger shifts in the Atlantic world that are, you know, sort of interconnected here and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's an incredibly important on the local level. And then you can go to the other end of the scale. And the fact that this bark was becoming more readily available, um, you do have, in spite of the questions about its efficacy, you know, you do have now, uh, more readily available a, um, a significant, you know, a, a truly efficacious treatment, uh, in most cases for malaria, which is a very, very old human disease and had plagued human populations for, uh, millennia and was a major problem in certain parts of the Atlantic world, as, um, you know, uh, various scholarship has shown. So that's certainly a significant outcome as well. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the other story that comes to mind, um, is actually a, a story that I think Hal Cook talks about in one of his articles of, you know, the Jesuits bringing the bark to uh, the emperor of China in the late 17th century. Maybe this is a story that you know, uh, as well, and, and sort of the way that they used that object to ingratiate themselves with, you know, the local powers that be, um, they did that in Europe as well. And so, um, you know, there are a number of different uh, things that are going on, uh, you know, on the two ends of the scale from the local to the global level. Um, and then, you know, the bark's just, it's more present. People are, you know, it's, people are able to write about it and study it and so forth. And um, that has all kinds of interesting consequences.
1: Yeah, there's this really cool Manchu language text from the 18th century um, mm. that's about medicinal drugs and diseases that they can be used to treat. And there's like, a section that's pretty much all Cinchona all the time, um, which is actually (laughs) really, really cool. Right. And that's interesting. um, Yeah. Well, we can talk about that also another time. We'll, uh, we'll do that. But in the (laughs) meantime, right. One of the things I really liked about this chapter um, also before we move on is that um, it pays careful attention to the importance of human labor and laborers to the Mm production of Kina. And and so Mm -hmm. again, it's just really sensitive to, um the f- physical and material um and human uh consequences and um as- sort of important contributions right. to this production of knowledge so yeah do- <laughs> so could i just say one please, thing on that yeah yeah
0: um yeah i mean i think that's another uh thing that i i try to emphasize in the book you know i think somebody just kind of coming at this book hearing about it for the first time and you know hearing you know, discussion of a tree bark. You know, I mean, that seems like such a, you know, I mean, you could go outside right now and pick the bark off a tree, right? But one of the things I really try to to make clear in the book, and this is connected to these uh, to these laborers uh, that are in the forest of loha collecting the bark, is that the bark is, uh, I mean, it's a product of the natural world, but it's also a product of human artifice as well, right? I mean, you have to have, in addition to whatever knowledge that you have as a you may or may not have as a healer because not all the laborers are necessarily healers you have to have a technical skill to go out into the rainforest find the trees i mean that's a skill in and of itself and then know which bark to harvest uh know how to uh, dry it in the right way so that it's virtue as they called it and and uh you know prepare it for to be shipped across the ocean you know so um yeah, there's 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 a quite a bit of knowledge that goes into making kina before it even arrives at somebody's bedside table for them to ingest. You know. So.
1: Absolutely. And the next chapter, um, we won't have time to talk about this at mm-hmm. much length, but it, I think it really nicely highlights precisely um, the significance of um, the transformations of kina as an object, right? The the fact that it had mm-hmm. multiple identities. Um, in the context of looking at it as a natural resource. And so um, in chapter three, just to sort of briefly tag this, and then we'll move to part two of the book, um, this chapter is looking at Kina as a natural resource, and it shows precisely um, these multiple identities, right? It was an object of Andean medicine. It was an object of Atlantic commerce, imperial policy, and also European science and medicine. And this chapter really takes us into the networks that facilitated circulation of the bark and very different kinds of but but articulating knowledges about it indigenous knowledge atlantic and imperial um this is also the chapter that takes us into the process by which the royal reserve of kina was established in loha in 1751 um, and the ways that kina became an object of empire for people um, who are particularly interested in historical epistemology, right? um, To use that phrase, or at least the the history of forms of knowledge and epistemic cultures, another really interesting thing happening in this chapter is that it's showing and taking us into what it um, locates as a distinctive epistemic culture of the Spanish colonial government, right? As it made Mm -hmm. um, Kina legible and also amenable to imperial administration. And you talk about the significance of hierarchy of um, like firsthand experience and empiricism, and also the significance of local knowledge and expertise to that. So this right. is to say we could talk for the next half hour <laughs> just about that. It's a fascinating yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But let's talk about what's happening um, later in the 18th century. And this brings us sure. into the second part of the book. Chapter 4 takes us into um, a kind of relationship between people um, and administrative units. And this is something, um, looking at conversations and debates and relationships is something that um, I think all or most of the chapters in the second part of the book do. Mm-hmm. This chapter looks at the relationship between the Royal Pharmacy in Madrid, which received and examined a lot of the quina from South America, and the Royal Reserve in Loja, which had just been right established um, in 17. 17- Fifty-one, and this produced annual quina shipments for the crown. Now, the chapter looks at a disagreement between Madrid pharmacists and Loja bark collectors over, like, which kind of quina was superior. Now, significantly, the bark collectors emerged as the winners. So, Matt, to take us into this um, uh, chapter a little bit, can you talk about this a little bit? Like, what's um, what was for you? Uh, significant about the nature of this disagreement and why is it so important for the story that the book is telling, um, that the bark collectors are the ones who basically win the day?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think just to, uh, yeah to kind of start with the, with the bark collectors, you know, um, I mean, I, th- you know, I think, one of the goals of this book is to sort of push back against this idea of, um, science and uh, science and empire, uh, always sort of, uh, fitting together hand in glove and, uh, you know, ruling with an iron fist, which is a, a vast simplification of a very important, uh, strand of scholarship. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that, even without that, I think, you know, coming at this from the 21st century, I mean, again, you know, most folks have a sense that science is pretty powerful. And the default assumption might be, oh, in these sorts of situations, of course, the botanists are going to win out because they have, I don't know, the most sophisticated explanation, or they're most closely connected to the crown. Uh, You know, but what's interesting about this story is, is it's a case where that doesn't happen. Um, and, uh, you know, so what I try to do in the chapter is kind of show the epistemic culture of the Spanish colonial bureaucracy in action. Um, and the way that, uh, the knowledge of these bar collectors is, I mean, it was, it was taken serious, seriously by many people in the bureaucracy and it was just kind of fascinating to me that, um, they can ultimately sort of, uh, prevail. Um, even though, uh, you know, there's this institution in Madrid, the Royal pharmacy, that's, I mean, it's literally in the, uh, Royal palace in Madrid. I mean, you know, it couldn't be any better collect- connected to the center of power, uh, you know, if it wanted to be. Um, and you know, they're, they're effectively sort of defeated in this case, um, uh, by the bark collectors who who assert the authority of their knowledge and their firsthand experience and all that stuff. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this story to me is you actually have this sample of, of, of bark that kind of goes back and forth across the Atlantic a couple of times, at least if you believe the sources. Um, and uh, I just thought it was an interesting kind of case because, you know, most of our story about Uh, say, the relationship between Latin America and Europe in the early modern period is that uh, Latin America is just bleeding natural resources to Europe, which are then being used for, I mean, the classic case, of course, is silver, but even cinchona bark, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of pounds being shipped uh, to Europe and other parts of the Atlantic world. Um, And here's a case where a piece of bark, you know, sort of goes against that current. And then, you know, the bark collectors are able to kind of make this convincing case and and kind of assert their authority within the epistemic culture of the empire so that was that was interesting to me you know because um there there aren't uh i don't know many stories like that uh, that i'm aware of so
1: Thank you, Matt. Um, And for listeners who are interested in um, not just the nature of this disagreement and the consequences, but also how it played out further, Chapter 5 looks at um, one of the main consequences of that disagreement in detail and its resolution. And and this is, as you show here and describe, the expansion of the community of experts in Spain who were charged Mm -hmm. with testing and examining cinchona bark. Um, And you talk about the ways that in the 1770s and 1780s Madrid officials begin looking beyond the expertise of the Royal Pharmacy, and you take us into right, right the new kinds of methods of analysis um, that are that start to be used at the Royal Pharmacy. So it's actually um, quite an interesting expansion of this story. Mm-hmm. And this brings us to chapters six and seven, um, the last uh, body chapters of mm-hmm. the book. Now, these are chapters that look very closely at the experience of botanists as agents of empire. Um, chapter six um, looks at the experience of um, Vicente. Uh, is that Vicente.
0: Vicente, yeah. Vicente, Mm -hmm. the
1: Italian-American in me wants to like pronounce all the C's as China, Vicente, (laughs) right? Right. Like mozzarella. So so in 1789, the crown appoints uh, Vicente Olmedo, this botanist chemist, as director Mm -hmm. of the Royal Reserve in Loja. Now, in the words of the book, he soon discovered that the utility and authority of European science had limited efficacy in the face of the larger challenges of colonial society. Basically science was not enough to guarantee effective imperial control. Um, So Matt, can you talk about that? I mean, you you talk about um, some important aspects of what he faced in the chapter, including the difficulty Mm -hmm. of working with laborers, right? Indigenous laborers, um, uh, the sort of challenge of working with plantations. You talk about his interest in uh, the production of Kina extract. But for you, um, what's most interesting and significant about the, these challenges that he faced in terms of the larger work that the book is doing?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, um, you know, the part of, you know, part of what the chapter is trying to do is really situate Almedo in the ch- in the local challenges of working in Loha, because that's where he goes. That's where the Royal Reserve is. And um, as you said, I mean, the sending of him is, in my reading, a sort of extended response to that earlier victory of the bar collectors that we were that, they, that we were talking about. Because in that earlier conflict, the Crown had actually sent instructions from the Royal Pharmacy in Madrid to the bar collectors and said, you should use these. And the bar collectors say, Yeah, we're not going to do that, right? Um, so you can sort of read what happens with Omedo um, in 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 the context of that longer sort of decades uh, uh, dialogue. And you know, the Crown has finally said, all right, well if they're not going to listen to our instructions, we're going to send somebody to make them happen. Um and yeah, I mean Olmedo uh in conjunction with the local um colonial official, um the Corregidor, uh sort of rural governor, uh find that uh, you know things on the ground are actually quite challenging, you know, and it, and it isn't just a matter of simple instructions and so forth. And so the book really tries to uh to 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 really show how in this local context that the challenges that he faced. and, And as you mentioned, there, there are sort of a number of them. And one of the things he's tasked with doing is establishing plantations. Right. And, um, which would be a great idea because, uh, you know, throughout the 18th century, um, the, the barks being harvested from trees, they're disappearing. I mean, there are multiple reports in the Spanish archives that, you know, it's, they're having difficulty finding the trees and so forth. Um, and so he wants to set up these these plantations, and he does this kind of model plantation, but it never catches on. And part of that has to do with this is a you know it's a it's a, it's a capital-starved region, right? Nobody's gonna um, you know uh, take the time and and perhaps the money to invest in setting up a plantation of a crop that has never been subjected to plantation agriculture before, right? They might you know just. Uh, you know, one hates to impute motives <laughs> to historical actors, but, you know, sort of rationally, it might make more sense to go with the known crop, you know. So that's one of the challenges. And then there's still this kind of economic recession in the highlands of the Audiencia of Quito. And so, um, the seasonal laborers that Olmedo is taking the time to train, uh, to train how to properly harvest and prepare the bark, um, they're they're sort of you know they're they're moving away they're they're going to the coast and seek of uh better job opportunities and so he complains about that and and then there's the uh the technological issue the crown wants him to start making this um extract of the bark uh which was becoming uh popular in europe and maybe seemed like a better way to have the the bark travel as an extract and. And he just doesn't have the the technology to do it. And he has a hard time getting the technology and so forth. And so, you know, there are all these sort of uh, these these factors that, um, you know, that 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 are kind of sources of resistance to what he's expected to do um, as a representative of imperial science in this local um, in this local context. Right. Um, so it was just it. His story, I thought, was an interesting kind of microcosm, on the one hand, of the relationship between science and empire, because that chapter also talks about his relationship with the local colonial official and how their duties are kind of broken up. Um, but it's also an interesting story about uh, the challenges that, uh, you know, of, of doing, you know, sort of, quote unquote, imperial science in a local, local context.
1: Mm-hmm. So this brings us to the final um, body chapter of the book. This is chapter seven. This chapter looks at a major debate among Spanish naturalists over the classification and the nature of Kina. Now, this debate hinged on, as you show um, in this chapter, competing visions of the imperial order. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we have on the one hand or in one corner of the ring... We have um, Mutis, right? Jose yeah. Celestino Mutis. He um, had been the director of Royal Botanical Expedition in New Granada, um, and mm-hmm. he has a particular uh, vision of empire that is regalist, and I'm going to ask you about mm-hmm. this in a moment. On the other hand, um, at least one of the people who is involved in this debate um, is ipolito Ruiz. He had yep. been the former director of the Royal Botanical Expedition to Peru and Chile, one of them at least, and he espouses a kind of mercantile vision of empire um so you're showing in this debate um in part the ways in which um what we might consider to be scientific issue, right? A debate around uh, particularly scientific or naturalist issues, right? Is how do you, Mm -hmm. um, what's the basis of classifying this object? Is it the bark? Is it the tree, right? Are ultimately Mm -hmm. grounded in sort of larger distinctions or visions um, about the nature of um, the empire and imperial order. And um, so this is really, really interesting. So let's Um, start getting into it. Um, Matt, what's the nature of the debate here? Can you kind of catch up listeners as to, you know, what are they arguing about um, and what's at stake for them?
0: Right. So basically what they're arguing about is how many different species of uh, cinchona tree or bark there are. They, They actually seem to be, you know, Muti seems to be more talking about the bark, and Ruiz and Pavone are talking more about the trees. But how many different kinds of quina are there? And the and the reason why this is important is is I mean there are a whole host of reasons, but one reason is that you know uh, the Spanish Crown, which has is supposed to have a monopoly on the best bark. They want to know what's the best bark so they can monopolize it. Um, but it's also incredibly important to um, the local producers in. Uh, loja and then you start to get bark production spread uh uh, starts up near bogota where mutis is based and it's important because if they can establish uh that their kind of kina is is equivalent to the kina that was coming from loja or uh you know equally as good whatever um you know then it has it has value right so part of what is driving this debate is the is the question about um you know, the, the literal commercial value of these, of these, of these barks. But then there's also the medical question, right? Are these medical, medically efficacious? Should they be sold in pharmacies and so forth? So, um, the stakes are, are very high and then they kind of get rolled into, um, this larger discussion that's happening in the Spanish, uh, imperial world in the late 18th century about, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, royal control of the empire versus maybe a more free trade model. And, um, you know, the Spanish crown as part of what's known as the bourbon reform starts to kind of liberalize, uh, trade. And I say that quote unquote, um, because it's, it's a very small step towards liberalization, but sort of opening up trade a little bit more. Um, and so there's this, uh, you know, that, Larger context uh, reverberates through this debate, um, because as you said, the major players are sort of on either side of this. Um, And I really try to think about, um, you know, how this debate over the scientific knowledge is connected to these questions about the imperial order and so forth.
1: So Matt, there's also a conclusion um, in the book Mm -hmm. and we won't have time to talk about it at too much length, um, but there are a number of really interesting extensions of the story um, and Mm -hmm. sort of larger methodological and conceptual points that you're making here. Um, So I want to just ask you about one of them and then invite you um, if you'd like to open out into any other of the major points you're making in the conclusion that we haven't had a a chance to talk about yet, please do so. Um, So I'll start with the question about, um, sort of imperial science in the early modern world. One of the things that comes up at the very beginning of the book, and this is reiterated here in the conclusion, um, is that. Um, if I could sort of uh, kind of summarize it this way, a lot of stories about empire and science or imperial science in the early modern world tend to be stories um, about very limited number of empires, right? Um, and one of the things hmm. that the book is doing is showing the importance of the Spanish Atlantic to early modern science. Um, and this mm-hmm. particular case for, you know, shaping how we understand what's happening here. So um, would you um, say a little bit about that? Um, And then, you know, if you'd like, if there are any other major conceptual points that you'd like to leave us with, please feel free to open out into that.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, one of the things that I thought about in writing this book and, and part of what maybe explains my um, y- you know, what you reference about the importance of the Spanish Atlantic world. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there's been a lot of scholarship in the last two decades or so. And and again, some of the folks I mentioned earlier, uh, like Jorge Canizares Izguera, Daniela Bleichmar, and, um, you know, Antonio Barrera, uh, Maria Portuondo. I mean, there are lots of folks, you know, sort of thinking about um, you know, there's and, and this is a larger sort of part of the story of early modern Spain and the early modern Spanish Atlantic world, you know, the sort of traditional historiography and this dates back to the early modern period itself with the black legend and and all of that, is you know, Spain was sort of seen as the kind of anti hero to modernity being left out of the renaissance, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, so forth. And so, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship, um, you know, for many decades now that has really tried to tackle that narrative, uh, you know, and, and that idea that, that Spain is somehow other and outside of the story of Europe or the rest of the Atlantic world or whatever it may be. And, you know, I, I sort of, thought to myself, you know, I, I feel like there's, you know, when I was thinking about this book, I, I, I had the sense that, you know, there's a, there's a good body of scholarship that has really made the case that's, that Spain, um, or the Iberian world. there's certainly people writing about the Portuguese world should be part of the story, you know? Um, and so what I wanted to do with this book was really think about, um, okay, Given that we're now thinking about the Iberian world as part of the story of the narratives of modernity, enlightenment, the scientific revolution, whatever, what can, what is this Spanish Atlantic case? What can it add to our understanding about the history of science uh, or the history of science and empire, right? And so I really tried... To make it not just a book about like oh yeah see there are these things happening in the Spanish Atlantic world too right science is there or whatever but just take that as a given and then say all right now how does this enrich um, our you know our our history of of, of science um, you know and so I, I think or I hope the the main contribution that I'm that I'm trying to make on that score is is really explore a case where there seem to be good reasons for science and empire to work together quite well, right? I mean, because if you think about it, this is, this is an empire trying to take control of the production and distribution of a tree bark. I mean, that doesn't really sound that complicated when you put it uh, in those terms, right? Um, and, uh, you know, but this turns out to be a remarkably uh, complicated uh, problem, as is any form of natural resource management. I mean, just think about debates that are happening now about climate change and endangered species and so forth. And so, you know, uh, one of the big things I talk about is this idea of, like, the fragility of science and, um, you know, really remembering that the early modern period, people hadn't gone through the 19th century and the 20th century yet. You know, the utility of science wasn't necessarily evident yet. And so trying to start from that position and really think about, um, you know, what were the challenges that came up in this case? Um, and, and try to tell a story where, you know, there is a really good faith effort and a strong investment on the part of the Spanish crown to really wield science as a tool of empire. But in this case, it, it doesn't work out. And I think it's, interesting to think about why and it's not just because spanish science is deficient or i mean that's not even a a reason that's on the table as far as i'm concerned right so given that you know what are the other explanations that we can come up with and how does that um as i said enrich our understanding of the history of science and empire
1: thank you so much matt and thank you for bringing us i think to a really really nice close and bringing us into our conclusion um, today, so there's obviously, and this is clear, right? Even from the last hour, there's obviously so much um, that we could have talked about that we didn't mm. talk about in the context of the book. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't have a chance to get to?
0: No, I I, I feel like we um, we gave the book a pretty fair airing, so. Right. <laughs>
1: And now that the book is out for you, um, what are you working on now? What are you inspired by? Um, what are you writing? Right.
0: Yeah. So I have sort of two lines of research that I'm following. Um, the one that I've been working on most recently is a project that I'm I'm calling uh, "How Drugs Became Modern," um, with firm awareness of all the problems <laughs> associated with all the terms in that <laughs> um, that title. Um, but it's 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 a it's a it's a, um, a sort of broader history to look uh, to try to understand uh, how and why uh, the transition from predominantly botanical uh, medicaments in uh, Western medicine to a predominantly chemical medicaments. So you know, sort of the pithy way I put it is, you know, in the 18th century, if you went to a pharmacist they were likely to start with uh, some kind of plant material, raw plant material, and, you know, make something f- uh, for you to, to take. Uh, whereas today, I mean, you know, n- nine times out of ten or maybe more than that, uh, you know, you go to your pharmacist and you buy your bottle of uh, nondescript uh, white, white pills, uh, you know. Um, and so just it's, it's meant to be a kind of bigger history of kind of thinking about that transition um, and what I've been doing most recently is just looking through uh, published pharmacopias and looking at the different sort of relative uh, um, amounts of botanical, chemical, and material, uh, um, animal materia medica in those pharmacopias, which is kind of mind-numbing work, but I, I think it's going to produce some interesting, uh, interesting results, or, or at least I hope. But I'm I'm at the very beginning stages of that uh, of that line of research, so.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Matt, so much for taking time away from that to talk about this book. Best of luck with that. Um, And it's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us at the podcast today and come back soon.